Yeah, I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just catapulting towards like, some greater purpose? The only DJ crazy enough to tattoo Jackie Brown on his ass. This is Michael Mann, and I ride with Extended Clip. Welcome to Extended Clip. I'm one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. I'm Malcolm Baum. I'm JC White. And it's episode 223. And for this special episode, we are bringing back a returning champion of the podcast. Two-time returning champion of the podcast. Coming back for his third ring. It is everybody's favorite rap writer, Jason Buford, coming on to talk about John Singleton's baby boy. Jason, how you doing today? I'm doing well, gentlemen. How are you guys doing? I'm spectacular. Dude, Malcolm, dude. you said your your PT's coming along. You're fucking, you're healing uh, up. Yeah, man. It's come October. I'm going to be a, a brand new man. Going to be Malcolm. Like, what happened? Bionic. I don't know if you know, but I, I broke my ankle, so I'm I'm laid up right now. How'd you break your ankle? <laughs> <laughs> that's a good question. I was I was dancing in the club, dude, and I broke my ankle. <laughs> that's that's the way you want to break it. That's electric. That's, a, <laughs> that's the way you want to break it. You want to do better. Robert's got to bet you for a while. <laughs> I just remember waking up at like five in the morning because I always wake up at like five in the morning and looking at Twitter and seeing Malcolm tweet from like 30 minutes earlier, like, you know, turned up too hard at the club and broke my ankle. <laughs> I was like, what, dude? What are you up to? <laughs> uh, Tom Cruise, like every every that, that's Cruise. Every single time he does Mission Impossible, I turned up too much and I broke my ankle. <laughs> <laughs> The, the real Mission Impossible was leaving the hospital. You're like, how do how do people even like in movies? Movies, everyone uses crutches. Yeah, like crutches are so hard to use when you can only use one foot. Like I barely could do it. I barely got it. You got to get on so, that Tom Cruise mindset, dude. Break a break an ankle mid stunt. Keep the fucking take rolling, baby. <laughs> Maybe one day I'll be on this level. Maybe one day. <laughs> one day. It's something to aspire to. I mean, Tom Cruise is older than we all think. If we can all, like, start now, you know, we have, like, a 40-year track program to get to where Tom Cruise will be at, like, age 70. I think maybe I can get there. Maybe. But there's a lot of, you know, uh, what, what are those special energies, that the photons or whatever that the Scientologists believe in? I think I got, I, I got to get injected with some of those, and then I'll be good to go. Um, but we're not talking about Tom Cruise this week. We're talking about another beautiful movie star. We're talking about Tyrese. We're talking about John Singleton, Baby Boy. Uh, this film absolutely floored me, to be honest. I watched a couple Singletons leading into it. Uh, just like a little mini marathon did the uh, you know Boys in the Hood, Poetic Justice, back-to-back double feature. And this really seems like the culmination of everything he was working to. Uh, toward in the 90s and you know Jason in your letterboxd review you compared it to Paul Thomas Anderson I think you couldn't be more on the money like it's it, it really feels like his later uh it, although the Wahlberg thoroughbred comparison is great but it really feels like his later super interior character dramas you know where you're really honing in on one person's interiority and their place in society and uh yeah I thought this was a fantastic film why why was it this one in particular you wanted to bring on the podcast um, I think when I had mentioned it to you, I had just seen it. And Singleton had a really interesting career, uh, maybe Rest in Power. He had an interesting career in that the more famous movies he made were the ones in the beginning, right? The Boys in the Hood. I mean, I pretty much know every line of Boys in the Hood and Poetic Justice, right? Like, I don't think they're his best movies, but they're definitely like his most popular 
And then he did Four Brothers, which I also think is very underrated. Uh, me, me and our our friend Rob like to text each other. I got the rock now. <laughs> that scene is great. That's like one of the best. Like th- I feel like Mark Wahlberg has a lot of kind of like bozo scenes in and around a sports venue, and that's got to be like top two, you know? Yeah, no, it, it's amazing. Um, and, and so I think Singleton had a he he had a better career than people imagine. When you look at Singleton's filmography, you might not remember all the stuff he did that wasn't. Poison Hood and Poetic Justice. Um, and I think Baby Boy is his best movie. It's his most well-written. It's um, it's his funniest. It's It's got great performances. It really is um, very meta, and it's a kind of a, a film within a film, if, if you will, um, without it being prestigious, right? Without it being a, like a prestige film. And... So I, I thought it'd be perfect to come on and talk about. JT, Malcolm, had you guys seen this one before? What were your initial thoughts? Yeah, I had never uh, seen any uh, Singleton uh, before, but I don't know. I was uh, very excited uh, getting this going in, and I don't know. I feel like I had like pretty much the same reaction to this as you did, Eddie, when watching. Like I saw you tweeted like uh, some pictures of uh, just various Ving Rhames uh, throughout this. And you were just like, you had said something about just barely having started it, but like already, you know, and just, I, I don't know, right from the beginning, it's just such pure, like expert craft and like character work and just is like strange enough at like parts, like especially opening with the whole like womb stuff like it's i don't know you're just just coming out of the gates you know it's a masterpiece uh and i loved it yeah no i i love this movie too i hadn't seen it before you know i've only seen uh probably boys in the hood by singleton and Mm. yeah i i was i mean it's it's a very impressive movie and i i had seen people kind of champion this before so i was definitely kind of like ready for it but like there's just a you know, it kind of it's kind of funny because I feel like it pairs well with the last movie we did, Cable Hogue, where it, it is it is just one of it's it's the type of movie I'm always going to gravitate towards to, you know, kind of uh, just about you know a, a simple uh, just about you know an average man in society and kind of the good things and the bad things he does that puts him in a certain position and maybe he tries to get out of that position. I, I, I don't know. I'm always going to gravitate towards a storyline like that. And I think here with like all, like the movie's just packed with like a lot of great metaphors, you know, a great visual style and, you know, these great performances, it's very uh, multi-layered and every character is, you know, fully felt. So, yeah, I mean, this is, this is the type of movie that's kind of, you know, timeless, you know, it's kind of like the, the you know these these are the type of movies that I hopefully are are always going to be made because it's just you know it's there's a universal universality to it. Absolutely, I mean the comparison with Cable Hogue, uh, the Ballad of Cable Hogue, the Sam Peckinpah movie we talked about last week. You know these are as different films as you could possibly imagine. You know an urban drama versus a almost comedic western. But you're so right, Malcolm. Both of these protagonists are just like 
as much as they have agency of their own and as much as uh, the actor playing the character informs the character, they're also totally products of their societies. And I feel like both of them are so good at being like social critiques with Cable Hogue at like the end of the West and modern society coming in. And with this, uh, with, you know, not just black culture, but also Los Angeles culture at the turn of the century. I think like as an L.A. film, you know, compared to other late 90s, early 2000s L.A. films, uh, I, I feel like this one like. I don't know. I feel like really all of the Singleton stuff, the way he treats uh, like South Central in particular feels almost like a backlot. You know, he has this crazy mix of social realism and this like Spielberg type wonder almost. And, you know, that was actually a criticism early on. I know Jonathan Rosenbaum criticized him uh, like when Boys in the Hood came out because Singleton said Star Wars was his biggest influence. And he was mm. like, well, he's not going to make as socially righteous as of a film as like Killer of Sheep if his favorite movie Star Wars, you know. But I think as Singleton goes, like him building into that artifice, that Spielberg Star Wars type artifice and like pushing into the melodrama of it all makes this his best film. I mean, this is like it's such a great mix of social realism and just total studio bombacity. You know, he he, he yeah. really feels like a like a neoclassical director, like a like a Frank Capra, but you know, with forty more years of knowledge. And I think too, it makes it way less didactic than Boys in the Hood is mm-hmm. because of the melodrama in it. You know what I mean? Like you're kind of just watching like a full picture. Whereas Boys in the Hood, there's definitely this social awareness both within the show and within what it wants to say to the audience, that's, like, so clear and it's so vibrant. And, like, you know, Boys in is a very important movie and I'm glad it exists, but, like, this one has such a melodrama in it. It's, like, within so many different, um, you know, it's very seminal in that it's, it, or, or it's, it's, it's comes from a lot of things that are very seminal because it has so many different, uh, um, you know, styles in it, right? It's, Kind of, yeah, you, Frank Capra is, is a per- perfect example. It's a really great example. Um, yeah. I love how this film opens with the almost like spoken word type piece about this stunted adolescence uh, of characters like uh, Jody in this and how... There's this psychiatrist, a lady named Dr. Frances Cress Welsing. She has a theory about the black man in America. She says that because of the system of racism, The black man in this country has been made to think of himself as a baby, a not yet fully formed being who has not realized his full potential. To support her claim, she offers the following. First off, what does a black man call his woman? Mama. Secondly, What does a black man call his closest acquaintances? His boys. And finally, what does a black man call his place of residence? The crib. 
this psychological infantilization. And obviously that's where the title comes from, Baby Boy. You see him in the womb in the beginning, which is like some Bo is afraid type shit. You know, I love that. Uh, <laughs> like just like really laying it on the Oedipal, womb to the tomb, you know, everything. And I love how head on Singleton makes it because this isn't an obscure art film. This is like a drama for everybody to go see. So you can't be too subtle but I think his subtlety is felt enough to get into the deeper parts of the movie. Um, but I, I think it's just a great touch. And uh, it opens on him like eating lemon heads outside the clinic, going to pick up Taraji P. Henson uh, after yet another abortion. Just like that one image is a fucking great microcosm of everything the film's trying to get at in the beginning of it. It like the, this movie and like when it's released, it really does kind of feel like a culmination of like a lot of the thoughts of like, a lot of like i don't know like popular black cinema at the time kind of like uh you know boys in the hood friday even a little bit and kind of like it does it synthesizes it into something that is just like like you guys are saying less didactic and focuses on this melodrama and it really just i don't know it, it feels like kind of like the most like uh just intelligent collection of thoughts that all, all those movies had and kind of just, I don't know, it feels so post those movies because it, it almost felt like it kind of meditated on like the style and the messages in those movies and it delivered it in kind of like the most smart and cinematic way. Yeah, I mean, it even touches on like the instant iconography of that kind of stuff. Like it's a very yeah. small detail, but like, you know, the fact that in the beginning, uh, Peanut, you know, who's Jody's second baby mama, second tier baby mama. Uh, she's rolling a joint on a copy, an LP of The Chronic, you know, and yeah. obviously Snoop is on every other song of that album, whatever. And he's in this film as, you know, the fourth, fifth character or so. Uh, and I, I, I feel believe like, also Tupac is like on yeah. the wall. Yeah. 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 yeah Tupac's really, on the wall yeah. and Wasn't they're playing Hail to... Mary. Yeah, exactly. JT yeah. He was supposed to be the lead when Singleton first conceived of this movie. And so the fact that he puts that Hail Mary needle drop while Jody's like working on his models and the, the Tupac murals behind him is like a total, you know, homage to the guy that this movie was initially made for. But I don't know, man. I feel like Tupac's almost too likable for the material. Like Tupac and Poetic Justice wins you over so easily, and that's part of you know it's a it's an old school romance. You know, this movie is so like harsh on both sides and such an ambiguous morality movie. You know uh, that I think Tyrese is just perfect for the role. He he's so I don't know vulnerable. You know. Uh, soft and hard at the same time really like I, I feel like he's just all over the place trying to find himself in the role which Jason you brought up the meta aspect I fill us in what was Tyrese doing like what was he he was more of a musician at this point than an actor or what like I, I guess he was more of a musician at this point because after this then becomes uh, Fast and Furious too yeah yeah uh, uh, but I do think at the time he was more of a of a, of a of a musician because 2000 watts is uh, is in 2000 mm -hmm. uh which was like his r&b record yeah no, no no he was more of a and then yeah yeah the the first was tyrese was which was the debut when in 98 which has like sweet lady and like and and lately um and so he was super young then if he was doing a studio album in 98 because he's like so young in this movie too and yeah i think mm -hmm. you know that's yeah, what yeah. really sells this is like seeing the youth in his face i think 
Yeah, absolutely. No, he's a very young man in this. Um, he's 44 right now. He was born in 78. And um, yeah. yeah so he, he must have been 20 when he cut his first album and in his yeah. early 20s trying to figure this all out. And yeah, the meta yeah. aspect of like him trying to juggle his career and figure out where this, you know, kind of racist system is going to let him thrive. And then this mm. character of Jody, obviously having these multiple paths, not just these two uh, mothers of two children, but all these other paths he could go down and which one within this society that is, you know, constructed itself to really not let him thrive. How is he going to thrive? And that is really what I came across as like the thesis of the movie is like it's a it's a recurring thing in melodrama, I think. And I think it really works here. And it's um like survival itself as a miracle you know like the fact mm -hmm. that they're just able to get by at the end of the day is kind of the 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 one crazy thing in the movie you know there's nothing outlandish in the movie and i i think that the way that singleton plays up all of those everyday struggles into hollywood melodrama is beautiful yeah i i, I think so too it's also Another aspect about it that I, I think is really interesting is, yeah, you know, we kind of touched about it before, is how unlikable Jody can be, right? Like, you know, this is not Trey from Boys in the Hood. This is not even Doughboy. This is not even Kane from Menace Society. Like, Jody is legitimately, like, incredibly unlikable and sometimes charismatic in, like, the wrong way and, like, the dangerous way. And he has this kind of, like, real kind of, like, wounded masculinity and this grimness in him. Um, Unlike kind of the other characters we've seen in these movies, which are a little bit less multifaceted, right? Like Jody is incredibly well written, um, and it makes it like a challenging, more a more challenging watch to watch Jody, you know, have to survive, but also Jody continue to do things that are, you know, fucked up. Quite frankly, right? Like it, it's past mistakes with Jody. Sometimes it's yeah. like okay, you just have a you just really have a demon in you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, when he really has like a moment of self-realization, that's kind of the, the start of the movie is that he needs to just get off his ass and make some money, you know, to get by and live. And, yeah. you know, it's uh, this thing where simultaneously he's threatened by Ving Rames, who's his mom's new boyfriend, uh, and thinks that he's going to get kicked out of the house because his mom's last boyfriend kicked his brother out of the house and then his brother died in the street a year later so it's again this thing of like what is the society around him what are his options even he thinks that it's either like i stay here with my mom until she dies and i take over the house or this abusive dude is gonna beat her up and i'm gonna get killed in the street you know like the fact that you know, uh, Ving Rhames' character is reformed and wants to help him is just like a miracle, even though it's just like human decency, you know? Uh, Ving Rhames' performance, fucking incredible. As funny as he is menacing the whole time, it just it's a flip of a switch. There's one scene where he has fucking Jody in a headlock, and then right after it, he literally has his mom in the same fucking headlock, and his mom's giggling and shit, and like I, the the blocking of that scene, how it's like, I don't know if it's all in one take, but the way that it flows from one to, into another is insane to me. That's, that's genius staging by Singleton right there. The way the film is able to like just seamlessly go through a variety of different tones like that, it's like I don't know, you talk 
uh, you, you talked about like the neoclassical like element to it. It is sort of like, I don't know, just the typical like Hollywood, like what you think of, of like a refined Hollywood product, like any old Hollywood film is going to have like moments of like action and comedy and you really get it all. And like this film just like goes through it so effortlessly and is able to like switch up like there are moments in the film that are like so fucking funny like some of those like Ving Rhames interactions like when you see just like when Jody is like on and confident and just fucking like those like the tone there is wild but then you can just have something so like intense and dark and miserable as like when uh Rames and uh, Gibson finally like when their like tension like finally comes to blows and then with Snoop like trying to like rape her in front of her child and like those moments all like come across as like fully realized and sensitive to like the intensity of what they're depicting it's just I, I don't know you you get it all in the, in the movie. Yeah, I think that range of emotions is so key to this because there are there's like just light comedy, you know, it's it's a hard thing to balance. It actually makes me think about uh, funnily enough, you know, almost an inverse of this, the color purple and Spielberg's insistence on having like goofy stunts and gags in that movie in between the abuse and the hatred and everything and same with Schindler's List and the fact that he has a a suspense sequence that's like a roller coaster in the middle of his Holocaust movie you know it's it's troubling and for some people it's totally fine and I get that you know but it's troubling to me uh I think Singleton is so good at riding those edges and anytime it butts up in a weird way it's in a way that's like transgressive and sad rather than in Spielberg where it's like, well, that's the easy way out. You know, uh, mm-hmm. I feel like any tonal like wrong turn or what feels like a wrong turn at first uh, is like always for a reason that's really interesting. I think Poetic Justice is like that, too. You know, Poetic Justice, far from a perfect movie, but, you know, the the way that it goes from like romantic gleefulness to really like fucking hardcore abusive stuff like really dark stuff in the flip of a switch like a a lot of reviewers didn't like that and said that the film went too far and stuff like that but if that's what singleton's issues are with tone i think that's good because the only time he goes too far is showing realities of what these characters are like you know yeah i mean i think um for example in poetic justice the scene where uh lucky's friend chicago you know kind of and regina king start hitting on each other right like i think in a lot of ways that comes from before everything five minutes ago everything was fine right like it, it, it's kind of like the spike lee um school of kind of tonal shifts um and i respect it yeah i i agree with you eddie yeah. like I, I really respect it and baby boy has this a lot as well um I think Ving Rhames is just incredible in this. Like, <laughs> I mean, just being naked all the time, and like, how about how he's like cooking, and then like uh-huh. the, way, the way the scene looks is like it's almost as if we're walking in on being on him being naked in the kitchen, and so you're like looking, and he's like looking back, 
<laughs> and we're like seeing it from Jody's point of view, like this motherfucker's in the kitchen cooking for my mom. <laughs> it's fucking crazy. Like, it, I mean, I think Vic Graves is so good at this. It's like one of his best performances. That's what uh, feels like the ultimate betrayal to him, too, because it's set up twice in the movie. Both of his baby mamas make food for him before that. And it's right, like the ritual right. of him being in bed and then having his woman cook for him. And then in this right. time, he wakes well, up he in his house. He has women, right? He yeah. has his mom as well. Yeah. And he has his mom. Yeah. And so yeah. in this one, he wakes up at his bed smells food and also yeah singleton cuts to that close-up of just the eggs on the griddle or whatever and it's not until he enters the kitchen that you see it's a fucking butt naked ving rames man like so yeah. good one of the most alpha the moves ever he's got on his back too he's got like a crazy tattoo on his back yeah he's got a he's got a hoover street uh hoover tattoo on his back it's crazy <laughs> That's he's got the is, big ass Hoover Crips on his back too, man. It's like no, it, it is. It, it it's a really it's a classic scene. Also, the sex scene is so weird. Oh my god, yeah. The this so the weird. It's like the type of sex that that guy would have too. Like it's just so fucking weird. <laughs> just like picking a woman up and just like walking a woman while fucking her. Like that's exactly the type of sex that guy has. He called. Like, he even so calls it the fucking. He calls it the African squat fuck, and he's doing it like, and they're doing that in front of the big screen TV where Mike Tyson oh is god. on fucking Larry King live. Like it's one of the most really insane is. set sex scenes ever. Like he calls. That that's out not, that they're doing accident by Singleton, by the way. It's yeah. not an accident. No, it oh, can't man. be. It can't be. <laughs> it's so, so good. <laughs> Speaking of little things with Singleton, too, there's a there's a bootleg DVD salesman in the beginning, which is Singleton himself making his cameo, which I love, of course. Uh but yeah, Ving Rames, man, there's that. There's the scene where he's eating her pussy too, like and Jody's trying to sleep, <laughs> and it's just so all the sex in this is like so insanely depicted. It's really melodramatic in that and yeah, I mean I, I think it, it kind of it's yeah it's just the sex is like the sex will be affair or some shit right like it's really melodramatic and really kind of like overwrought in this way um and i like almost appreciate it right like I, it takes this movie takes such big weird swings in a way that you wouldn't expect singleton to do yeah um it's a movie that's in touch with sexuality and how that works in with black men and 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 um you know the tantalization of you know the black man sexual drive right like and i think that's like a huge um thing that he's kind of talking about here in the movie um that he doesn't necessarily talk about in other movies um there's a lot of good stuff with boys in the hood a little bit about sex but it's a little bit more of like a uh you're 60 don't wear a condom thing right like it's like a little bit about like it's very didactic as we said yeah but here there's it's there's a sensuality in the movie um, an explosive sensuality in the movie that um, I, I don't I, I, I don't think that when you watch it, you're going to think that's that's going to be the case. But there is. Yeah. Yeah. No, all these different like kind of swings throughout the movie, you know, like even, you know, talking about the sex, there's even a scene where I think Tyrese and uh, Taraji P. Henson, they're like, you know, they're fighting and then, you know, the fighting, you know, turns to sex and whatnot. And all these like different mood shifts, I feel like they don't like they feel natural in a way. Like mm -hmm. they like sometimes they could be a little bit jarring, but like it all feels like part of a portrait of you know of a single life. And like the humor, you know, depends on the drama, you know, and vice versa. That that's what I think is really great. Cause something like the Ving Rain scene where you know he's butt naked cooking, it's obviously hilarious, you know what I mean? But it is like 
it is like how disrespectful is that like you know if you were in Tyrese's shoes like you would be fuming (laughs) so mad like you know what I mean and kind of just like the you know him kind of uh having to take that in you know and it, it kind of being uh you know a bigger part of you know when they come to a head I don't know just all these different shifts and kind of uh uh, places it goes I think it, 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 it it's it's like a big puzzle piece rather than I don't know kind of feeling uh kind of pasted together or something like that yeah that sex scene after they have their big fight is probably the biggest swing in this movie in terms of tone and I love it you know it's like yeah. literally a cut from them yelling I hate you to I love you while they're in bed together and it's it's really an audacious fucking sex scene man it's like he mm-hmm. then goes down on her and it goes to this crazy montage where it's a reflection of a montage we saw earlier in the film that we perceived as being Jody's like nightmare where he sees himself get killed and all this stuff in the future. Uh, And then, so she's having like a very similar uh, vision of like their past and their future together while he's like going down on her. And it's like a, it's a pretty incredible depiction of like, the big picture meaning of one intimate event, uh, as hard as that may be to depict uh, in a movie, you know, like that's a that's a that's a hard thing to depict in a movie. But I, I really like the approach that Singleton went with here. Yeah, I mean, I, I I also think that they have such explosive fights that you can kind of see that part of their thing is that kind of like sexuality, right? Like, is that that's like kind of like the been the dynamic forever um and i mean there's even like there, there's even a scene where snoop dog attempts to sexually assault Toronto, right like i mean there's there's so much different stuff happening in relation to sex and power and masculinity um that is it's 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 you know it's, it's a lot of it's a lot it's a lot to talk about um and it's it's done also as we talked about it's it's also done with a, a reverence right you know what i mean like it's it's really done with a a tonal reverence um and it all it all works because tyrese is so like emotionally like overdoing it constantly jody has a character like that um which makes tyrese who is a man known for his public uh emotions right like i think that makes him such a good actor for this role is because like Jody is like such a kind of like emotional, you know, maniac, right? Like, I mean, he's just, yeah, the guy's like swing, taking big swings emotionally. So. <laughs> I mean, the emotional intensity sometimes all, like also will just be matched by, again, it's like perfect for like matching the formal characteristics of like a melodrama and the intensity required there. And Singleton, one very like, beautiful moment that I'm surprised we haven't touched on yet that I feel like is kind of like this is when uh, um, uh, like Jody is thinks he's like shot and killed and it's like played as reality and then you get like the reaction of him realizing he's alive 
And like, again, like, cause I, I, I hadn't seen the film before and I was like, not sure where it was going to go. I was like, very well, like he could have been killed in that moment. And if you could see the film go in that direction and having that little fake out there, you get the experience that you've had as an audience member being like, oh, wow, shit, that he went for it. And, and then being able to step back and be like, you you just totally embody Jody's mindset there and uh, the, the performance reflects, like, that intensity of someone who's just, like, had that moment of, like, holy fuck, I could have been killed. Yeah. I mean, I also think that, like, if you look back at Singleton's history, moments like that have ended in death in his movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So you're kind of thinking, like, oh, shit. You know what I mean? Like, this <laughs> might happen, you know? Like, um and I mean, I mean, throughout these movies, just going out for revenge on someone is like played as the biggest thing. Like that's, you know, Boys in the Hood, that's three times almost it happens in that where it's like the big turning points of the movie. Even in Poetic Justice, before he goes on the trip, Lucky goes up to see a couple of his friends that pull up in their car and they're like, oh, yeah, we're going to go see about that guy who hit that guy last night or whatever. And, you know, Lucky's just like, no, nah, that's not for me because it's a you know, fun, romantic movie. We're not going to see the consequences of that in poetic justice, but here it happens once again, where it's like, yeah, we, we see a, a uh, reunion, a tearful reunion of Jody with Yvette Taraji P. Henson's character after it's revealed that, you know, Snoop Dogg's character got out of prison and had just been staying at their place uh, against her will and attempted to rape her in front of their kid and so they just drive up in her car uh, in like the ultimate deception because you see it from a million miles away, but it still feels so tragic. You see Jody's face just light up thinking that it's Yvette coming through to her house, uh, to his house rather, but it's actually Snoop Dogg. A reference in this that I think is amazing is you go all the way back to an hour earlier in the movie. When uh, Ving Rhames brings in his big flat screen, or not his big flat screen, but his big rear projection TV, and Jody's flipping the channels, and for a second, By the way, it's so funny that he just has a projection television. Yeah, fucking rear projection TV, fucking huge weird ass projection yeah. TV that's like fucking huge. <laughs> uh, he's flipping the channels through divorce court and shit, but then he sees the good, the bad, and the ugly for a second. And then in that shootout, we get those fucking matching eyeball close-ups on Snoop's bloodshot red eyes and, you know, Jody's wide eyes, like, so frightened. And I think him repurposing that and using it as a clear reference to film history, it's like, it's film history 101 shit. Sure, good, the bad, and the ugly, but, man, I loved the way he used that reference. No, it's super fun. And I think the reason that whole kind of fake out scene works, I mean, obviously, is a kind of like the visions of death that this character has throughout the movie. And I, I found these visions of death very powerful because it's like, it's kind of like his, the way he's operating on the day to day. It's He's almost kind of like in the back of his mind, kind of expecting that he will be killed and like kind of absolved from like all the all these responsibilities or whatever, you know, and kind of him kind of not getting killed in a close death situation, I think is kind of like the great perfect climax of this movie and him just going to, you know, live, you know, him visiting, you know, Taraji P. Henson, you know, you get the impression it's like, all right, he's going to live life, you know, with a more positive mindset or just like 
you know, I, I don't know. I, I think all the 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 constant like death being on his mind made that fake out just you know ten times more powerful. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it goes back to what that's the first thing you see in Boys in the Hood. You know, before an image even comes up, you see that text that it's like one out of every 22 black men will be killed rather than die naturally or whatever it says. Yeah. Uh, and it's like, that's just, that's how he starts his career. And it's always going to be there as long as he's making movies about, you know, urban life in South central Los Angeles. And that's mm -hmm. what all but two of his movies, you know, he had a couple studio assignments, but otherwise he stayed true to it. Um, what do we think of Taraji P. Henson's performance in this? Got the brakes fixed on the car. That's what I've been doing. What you been doing? You been fucking around? Nope. Let me smell your dick. Girl, you better go with this bullshit. Nah, if you ain't been hauling around, you been all busy, busy, busy. Let me smell your dick. I can tell. Honestly, I kind of love it. I was unsure at first. And, like, the more tragedy that she goes through, and this is usually the opposite of how I am with performances that I'm not sure about usually the mm -hmm. more histrionics come the more i'm like all right i'm not too into this but i feel like the more intense scenes got the more she really matched anyone she was in a scene with and uh yeah it yeah. was it was really good and the stuff I mean, like you see the beginnings of cookie lions right an empire yeah yeah <laughs> it, it's it's a it's a star making <laughs> performance for sure. Absolutely. Malcolm, I mean, Malcolm Black's Empire. <laughs> uh, I, watched, I watched season one of Empire. Yeah. I, oh I, yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> season one is great. Like I mean, yeah, like yeah, yeah. Season one is so much fun. <laughs> All I remember from Empire is Lucius making that song in the prison, and I actually I looked that up the other week. That's like the funniest clip of all time. Is uh, Lucius uh, played by what's his name? Terrence Howard. Um, mm. And like he's 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 in, in prison and he's like making a rap song and like he's you've got like the producer on the keys like going like <laughs> a mile a minute like he's got a full <laughs> studio and like hype men behind him it's like it's the funniest scene ever so thank you for bringing up Empire I, I, that's, that sounds like a high recommend <laughs> oh yeah absolutely yeah I mean Taraji's great in Empire and I, I think yeah. you kind of see um that like intensity that she has here and the histrionics um, and the histrionics that's backed by real pain, right? Mm -hmm. By real kind of uh, pain done by the men in her life uh, that she that she has in 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 Empire. It, it starts here in this movie. So I actually I, I love her performance. Uh, I also think one last thing I want to say about this movie as we wrap up the whole like bicycle thing because he's like a local bike repairman for the local kids and it feels like that's a whole other subplot that could have been expanded more and apparently the film was cut down a little there was like a longer version of it I know Ving Rhames talked about that in an interview he said he thought his character got shortchanged in the edit which means if there's more Ving Rhames scenes I want to see them like I want to see I, every single inch of fucking footage that he shot for this movie it's <laughs> it's one of the yeah, most magnetic fucking performances in this movie yeah we need more big raids. I mean, he is just so good. <laughs> it's the fucking so scene, good. 
the you know scene... what's really funny? If you imagine Luther in Mission Impossible and like, you know, <laughs> like this is like we, we, like Luther's previous life in the Mission Impossible <laughs> before Impossible Mission Force, he was Melvin. <laughs> Expanded universe. No yeah, wonder Luther can't that? fucking yeah. stand up anymore, man. He went through some real <laughs> shit. <laughs> bro, you imagine that shit, bro? <laughs> That's what I kept thinking about when I was watching it. I was like, bro, what if Luther from Mission Impossible? Oh, oh my God. Be Melvin, bro. <laughs> also, yeah, I mean, I, bro, what's, bro, also, what's also interesting, I feel like I've never seen Snoop used in a movie quite like he, how he's used in this. Yeah, where, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, kind of at a certain date, he kind of just becomes novelty or whatever, you know, in his in whatever movie he's in. But, you know, in the 90s, he was doing some legitimate acting, but like, it, it is just kind of, I, I, I wheelchair say- tra- The wheelchair guy in training day. He was a- yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> he's yeah. just kind of used as like a normal actor here, which is like, just, I don't know. It's, it's kind of, cause it's like, usually if like Snoop's in the movie, it's like, all right, they're gonna give like extended, you know, he gets plenty of scenes, but he's in it less than you would think, especially given the poster. So mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just kind of a, a normal use of Snoop and he does a good job being, you know, menacing. I mean, the poster is something we've talked about on this podcast before where it's like, if you put a rapper on the poster of a movie, like no matter how many lines in the movie he has, you have to put the rapper on the poster and someone, That's people true. are going to show up, you know, uh, and Snoop, Snoop has a good part of this, but yeah, no, I was going to say the Ving Rame scene where not to get into the, the whole spoiler shit, but you know, uh, after the climax of the movie, like this movie came out in two thousand two. Yeah, like Everybody's, you have no excuses to be mad. Gotta see it. Pause <laughs> it. Watch it. Uh, when Jody's about to try and kill himself, and in my heart of hearts, I knew he didn't have it in him to do that. Like he has too much to live for in that moment. But mm. he's such a dramatic character that you know he's really close to doing it. It's a it's a totally wordless scene with him and Ving Rhames, and I love how the scene after uh, they talk they say something about like how they had a talk the other night, you know. But it's a completely wordless scene, and I think it's all just those glances and him, you know, pulling the finger off the trigger, just prying his finger off the trigger, and all of the glances they give each other in that scene is so powerful. I I love it. For me, this one also, yeah. So the the bike stuff is awesome. I love how the kids treat him like a god because he has the coolest bike in the neighborhood and he doesn't even care and the bike says nympho on it too <laughs> but- Wait, oh, that's right the bike says nympho on it so funny i you know i i i i, I want to speak to kind of how hip-hop um single test movies always are right yeah. like i think if you look at boys in the hood that's you know an nwa type of style right that's a feast off fellowship type of style where like this Ice Cube, whereas it's just like socially conscious, like purposefully very socially conscious movie. Um, and then I think as he got more confident as a director and as a screenwriter, like you have Baby Boy, which is like could be, you know, considered like, you know, Good Kid, Bad City, or it could be considered, uh, uh, you know, um, All Eyes on Me, right? Like I think there's a, a change in the way he views hip hop through the lens of his filmmaking. Yeah. I mean, he's talked about it. He says, I have this quote here where he says, I see myself as the first filmmaker from the hip hop generation. The films I make have a hip hop aesthetic. Uh, It may not have rap in it, but there's a whole culture and politics that go with the music. 
And so, you know, as much as we, you know, in the last month we talked about movies that reflected certain genres. You think that's fair on Spike, by the way? Uh, <laughs> that's uh. true. But the thing is, I think grown up with hip hop music, he probably is the first. But like, I, I think generationally, only because he's a little uh, younger, I would say. Like Spike, yeah, Spike yeah. became a filmmaker right when hip hop was coming up, right? And then Singleton grew up with hip hop. So it's, it's like, weird. like there's I don't equally know. as much of jazz and spike movies in the exactly. Like, yeah, I mean, like yeah. he got game has a lot. He got game has an amazing soundtrack with like public enemy, like really deep cut public enemy songs that are incredible. Like, um, I, I, I forgot. It's just after after he Denzel like chokes. Um, we're getting a little off script here, but after Denzel chokes, uh, Rosario Dawson's boyfriend. Yeah, like the song that plays after that is like a fucking Onyx song. I think like it's incredible. Um, and it still and has it, all that like Terrence Blanchard trumpet stuff over it. Like, right. all, I I think Singleton takes from that totally too. I mean, Singleton even cited a like a, a screening, an early screening of uh, She's Got to Have It, like where he met Spike as like one of his biggest inspirations. So I think him coming from like half a generation behind Spike Lee, there's totally a interesting relationship there. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, I find. I also find that Tyrese as an actor is so historic in the way where like, if you look at a rapper who is like a fake tough guy, that's like what Jody would, would be like, kind of right. Like if you look at a rapper, who's like really like a theater kid rapper, like that's like very, it's very Jody in, in that way. Um, yeah, yeah no, I, I was mean, weirdly I, thinking about Drake when I watched Poetic Justice, like thinking about like what rappers would actually want to be like the romantic lead in a movie right now, you know, like uh, an out and out romantic. I think movie. Drake would be Drake. I think do Drake, it. if it's a good movie, it could yeah. do it. It would have a bit of dissonance to it. It would be funny, but I would, yeah, I would yeah. watch it I if think, it was a good filmmaker, you know. No, I mean, I think Drake really should be doing. He should act. He should act in like a. He should star in like a. Eminem type movie or Tupac type movie um, that's like fun, irreverent, but also like, you know, has a little bit of a message and, and, you know, he could, yeah, I think he'd be great. I think he could too. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I like that's our closing thought here. Drake be in movies. Uh, I give Drake this one a, movies. this one's a five for me. I was kind of floored by it. It's the best thing I've seen from Singleton. And I think of the like late 90s, 2000s uh, American studio, like real dramas. It's like mm. what Paul Thomas Anderson, Alexander Payne, uh, Michael Mann, technically with like the insider, I would say. Uh, I think this puts Singleton right in that bunch with them. Uh, just like one of the great American dramatists of the era. James L. Brooks, of course. Uh, yeah. Mm, so that, yeah, that's yeah, that's yeah. my piece on that. Uh, yeah. Whoever wants to go next. I mean, this has very terms of endearment vibes in, in its melodrama, right? Like, yeah, totally. It, yeah. I was yeah. I was thinking about Brooks through a lot of these movies, honestly. Like, the yeah. episodic p pacing is uh, part of it, too, because they don't follow typical narrative structures. They have these 15, 20-minute chunks that just feel like their own movements, kind of. And uh, that's how Brooks paces, too. Uh, JT, mm -hmm. what would you think about this one? A score? Um, yeah, I'm going five as well for this. Uh, just like a masterpiece, uh, like across the board. And with something like this, I mean, again, I it's certainly made me curious to check out uh, the rest of Singleton's work, and I think I'm going to do that fairly soon. Uh, but something that has just such 
an intense specificity to character and like truth there and just like making a complicated character that like clearly the film has like certainly things on its mind socioeconomically but that all unfolds like just kind of like it's not it's just baked into it because it's following such a particular character in like such a particular circumstance that everything else just kind of all like all of the commentary just kind of falls into place even though they're like obviously i don't heavy-handed feels wrong to say but obviously there are more pointed moments here but it just feels uh effortless malcolm it's not heavy-handed it's just heavy you know um yeah but uh, I'll, I'll give it a four bullets yeah, this movie is great. like i and i i thought like uh it's it's also it's like its use of metaphor i thought felt pretty like natural too and like i don't know you know metaphors can be i don't know sometimes they could feel forced but it all felt like kind of like within the world of the film i mean obviously like the womb stuff is great but it, even like the tupac the tupac fathead i don't know if singleton invented uh, a <laughs> on, on, uh on the baby boy set i wish but, i um, got better like quality on that because it looks like from one angle it looks like the nose piercing is a 3d element on the wall like it looks like the nose piercing sticks out like a doorknob almost. Like if you go I mean, back to be. that room, it looks like three D a little bit. Like I wish I want to see this on a print or get a Blu-ray of it someday. I can't believe there's no good Blu-ray of this. Damn. No. Yeah. But let's let's get those popping. But um. Oh, but yeah, a restoration of Baby Boy. Like it must happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. Give me like a four K at like Metrograph. Like we need it. Yeah. Let's you know give the people what they want. And I, yeah. you know, it's kind of it's kind of funny. Even though Tupac was designed to be the lead of this, so I don't know if Singleton is exactly thinking this, but like the life and career of Tupac, and kind of like how he couldn't decide whether he wanted to be like an artist, and then he got like involved with gangs, you know, while he already made it. It's kind of you know, it's kind of it's kind of interesting that Tupac kind of almost hovers around this movie almost as like a like a ghost. You know, it's I, I don't yeah. know. I don't know if that's exactly what Singleton was thinking, but. I don't know. It, it adds it adds a lot to this. Um, he's so, yeah. almost like he's almost like a cautionary tale for totally. you know what a the mistakes a young black man can make, right? <laughs> and 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 just the tragedy of just a young black man with talent and couldn't and who couldn't quite figure out who he wanted to be, right? Like what wing that he was a part of. Um, it's a yeah. I mean, it's. I used to have it at five out of five. I'm gonna go four point five out of five. Like this is my third watch of Baby Boy, um, and it's almost it's it's great. It's obviously so so great. Um, I do think there's a there's a precision that it's that it doesn't quite have. Yeah, um, and that's a that's a gift and a curse in the movie. Um, so, but but I, I I used to have it as a as five out of five. I'm gonna go four point five out of five now. It's it's it on the third watch. I, I I knocked it down one little half star, but it's still just so it's so great. Um, it's it's really it's it's really such a surprising movie for a lot of people. I think, um, especially if you've seen those kinds of movies. Um, this one's just like it has so much depth in it. 
Um, yeah, and I think the little bit of bagginess in the pacing, which is objectively there, like you're right, absolutely. But it's uh, for me, and I feel like I fall into this a lot with the dramas of this era. I almost character dramas of this era. I will always forgive a little bit of slow, baggy pacing, lacking a little bit of precision if the character work is Movies, there. They're not made like that anymore. I mean, if you make this movie now, this is like one hour and 50 minutes, and it's exactly. not that fun, and it's a little bit like artsy and didactic and kind of corny, you know what I mean? Like, I think this yeah. is like... Uh, this is a movie that's that's not made that much anymore, if you make really, the, if you make this movie now yeah. lin-manuel miranda's name is in the credits somewhere <laughs> yeah, somewhere, yeah, yeah, somewhere somewhere yeah, somewhere exactly, even exactly. if it's associate fucking something uh, yeah he's somewhere yeah he's somewhere in it he's somewhere but no, yeah absolutely. i think he's somewhere in it Child, yeah, get cover maybe as well or something yeah. <laughs> i think as good as it gets for me is the what i always think about where it's like oh man there's totally if oh, you're taking a knife to that Eddie, movie, you're sure. To me right now. Yeah, like, I'm a defender. I am a defender of as good as it gets. Forever. Absolutely, I man. Really like I I just I showed really it to like my girlfriend, movie, and I was like, so, that was. I've shown her like my all-time favorite movies, but that was the one that I almost was the most defensive. Like, you better fucking like this movie. <laughs> because I don't know. There's something about it where if you take a knife to it, you can take 20 minutes out of it if you want. You know, like if you're Steven Soderbergh or whatever. But the reason why it's so good is because you're spending maximum fucking time with Jack Helen Hunt and Greg Kinnear, and they're all giving God tier performances. Greg yeah, Kinnear yeah. between that and Stuck on You, what happened, man? He was so oh, good. I know. He was so <sighs> good. Oh. Helen Hunt, uh, Helen Hunt is so good. I learned there's new there's new things in her performances every single time I watch it. Yeah. Seriously, there's like new things I notice that she does in the movie, like new like line readings that it, it, she's incredible. We'll be right back on extended clip. Mm. Know about that music, youngster? That's grown folks' music. Ooh, that's Marvin. What's he say, babe? <laughs> Jody, Marvin, please. And we're back on extended clip. It's everybody's favorite segment, Malcolm in the Middle. Malcolm. Since we recorded a few days ago, or even before that, I don't have to mess up the timeline. What have you watched recently? That's good. Well, fuck, that's good. Well, oh, that, it doesn't have to be good if you want to <laughs> yeah, yeah, talk yeah. about some mid. Well, you know, I just I, I, I could I could go back in the diary and be honest, or I could go back in you know the the film diary and pull out a movie, talk about it, maybe put you know our listeners on to something that's good and worthwhile, but. I'm going to keep honest to the exercise and list the only movie I've watched in between recordings. And that is the new movie Insidious, the red door directed by uh, Patrick Wilson. And uh, you know, I, I you roll out to it. the multiplex for this one. No, no, I didn't. I it's a, uh, it's available. You could wow, that it, quickly. You could rent it for $20. So, uh, <laughs> if you like renting movies for $20, uh, I don't know. My, my, my dad likes these movies, so I, you know, I decided to watch it with them. And this one's directed by Patrick Wilson. I mean, it's, it's no good. It's, 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 uh, you know, what's funny about the Insidious movies. Yeah, Patrick Wilson, he's the lead. He's the lead in Insidious, which is, you know, they, there's a series. And he's also the lead in The Conjuring, which is like the conjuring and insidious like basically exist like in the same area of my mind of like kind of like they're pretty much like, the same thing they're, they're close much, enough they're pretty much the same movie 
you know, just kind of like respectable non-art house horror. Like they were like horror, big hit horror movie hits in the early 2010s. And and so like coming into this movie, I'm like, what happened in Insidious? And, but I was like, I don't remember, you know, like, am I remembering The Conjuring? Basically my complaint is Patrick Wilson being both the lead in The Conjuring and Insidious, both movies that have sequels and like lore to them or whatever bullshit makes them like impossible to remember. Like it's just all one movie and series. So as someone who hasn't seen any of those movies, I agree with you. I think they're all the same (laughs) movie. I, there's been like fucking eight of those. Like all the recent horror movies are the same series. I thought like the insidious and the Annabelle and all of that. Like I literally thought all of those franchises were within one and finding out that there's actually not, like there's multiple horror franchises going on right now. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a mind bender because I, it's weird. I love horror movies, man. I skip all of those. I like <laughs> horror has like the lowest hit rate for new releases right now for yeah. me, uh, which is sad because that's the one that's fun to go see with a crowd, you know? No, totally. No, it's and to be honest, I feel like the the original like Insidious Conjuring, they're like perfectly decent movies, like definitely get you where you need to go in terms of like horror movies. So I I was willing to give this one a shot thinking, you know, maybe it would be lightly likable. I wasn't expecting much. And to be honest, it's, it's, it's a, it's, it was worse than I expected because it's like about like, it's like a dad movie, you know, it's about like a dad and his son who are disconnected and the son's going to like art school and college and like, um there's just a lot of like art school like nonsense it's like a noah bombback style horror movie (laughs) (laughs) true that kind of makes it sound like that but it's like at the same time it's like it's it's not that either it's just i don't it's just it just does a bunch of like lame like family type stuff I, i there's no real need to get into the movie but i just thought it's funny that Patrick Wilson is both the lead of like Insidious and Conjuring. And I think they might have, James Wan might have directed both of them originally. So very confusing stuff. You know, I, I'm usually, I don't know if people know this. I'm a big advocate for Jason Blum of Blumhouse uh, Horror. I feel mm-hmm. like he's one of the few honest men in Hollywood. But uh, Honest? <laughs> Why is he honest? I, I, I don't know. Just because he keeps making him. small horror movies that are okay? Yeah, basically. I don't know. Oh, I trust okay. him. I, tr- I trust I trust his, you know, it's more of like a like a business standpoint. You like, trust him know. as a businessman. I trust him as a businessman. And you're trying to plant know. the seeds right now. This is public record for you. Ten years from now, you're trying. You're in Jason Blaum's office, and you're like, yo, man. Well, yeah. You, you hear this episode 230 <laughs> of Extended Clip where I said that I respect mm-hmm. you more than anyone in Hollywood? It's like if... So how like, about oh, it? Can I direct Annabelle 12, The Insidious? <laughs> and it's it's kind of like if uh like if you're a female filmmaker like aspiring female filmmaker and you're like typing up your negative review of barbie right now fucking delete it don't be a dumbass Wait, like, what? You know? did, what does that have to do with anything <laughs> no it's I, i'm i'm joking I'm just, okay it's like this is going to be a powerful person in the industry you're not going to want to step on her toes in any I don't know. Just my advice. Okay. This you know gone, what? I'll, I'll, I'll let that one lay right where it lays. I'll just let that one sit there and for the audience to interpret it as they may. <laughs> Jason, our guest. Nope. Malcolm, your segment is over. <laughs> Jason, <laughs> our guest of honor. Uh, have you seen anything noteworthy recently? Um, 
I saw I did Barbie Harmer. Nice. And, yeah. Um, did you actually do it like back to back same day and everything? No, I didn't. I didn't. I should have, but I didn't. I don't know anyone that actually did that. And it's like, I don't want to eat think, meals at the movie did. theater. What'd you say? I think Quentin did. Oh, well, I mean, hey, more power to him for literally yeah. anything he does. <laughs> uh, apparently Cruz did too. But no, no, I think my, I think I had a friend. I had one friend who did it. Um, you know, I actually want to ask why. What was what was Barbie all about? Because I haven't seen it. I don't know, JT. Did you see Barbie? Uh, I'm probably gonna see it this week. And I don't think Malcolm I, saw it. So, can we get a little report on Barbie? I thought that Gosling, Robbie's great. Gosling's great. Uh, there's things in the movie that I didn't love, um, but it was fun and it was well done. Uh, Gosling and and Robbie are terrific. They're yeah. really terrific together. Um, Gosling is really funny. He might win Best Supporting Actor. Like he was so funny. Um, it, it 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 shades of Ed Norton and Birdman. Damn. Like very like Birdman's a horrible movie in a yeah. lot of ways, but Ed Norton's really good in it. it it's it. Yeah, like it, it's. I thought that Gosling was like so funny and so like aware of like what the assignment was. And like, just like, it went full throttle with that assignment. I thought he was great. Um, and I thought Robbie's Robbie's a star. She's always been a star. Yeah. Uh, and it's I, like yeah. a decade of her being like incredible as a movie star at yeah. this point from Wolf of Wall Street. Um, I three and a half. I go three and a half. I, I put a three and a half out of five. I, I liked it. Um, I, I thought Oppenheimer. I'm gonna see it again, but. I thought that while Nolan has turned a corner in some aspects, especially in the in in his politics and in the way he can talk about someone's guilt, I also think that the ticks that he still has as a filmmaker, they still show. Yeah. No, I'm with you, man. I I I was a I Nolan skeptic. Was a I turned around and I I liked Oppenheimer a lot, but I agree it's still a flawed movie. I think it's really really fucking good, but it's like I just I can't get on the board with I can't get on board with people saying it's perfect or his best movie like, or anything like that when it's like you have the profound emotional impact of Interstellar, you have the clockwork precision of Inception, you have all these other things and it's like they might have their little nagging problems too, but I don't know, I feel like yeah, I as you said Jason, like the things that nag at me for Nolan throughout his whole career a lot of times is relationship stuff and I did like the Florence Pugh stuff and uh, actually quite a bit. I thought the way he deployed it was frankly savage uh but i i thought that the emily blunt stuff reminded me of the relationship stuff and like the prestige and some of his other early movies that i was like not so hot on that like those yeah. relationships you know and uh i just i i love oppenheimer I, or not even love i really really like oppenheimer uh not to get too caught up in the semantics of like and love uh but like i i do and i'm not trying to zag against the cultural movement of nolan bringing all these people to the movie theaters again for a movie shot on 70 millimeter you know that's fucking sick and more people saw a movie on film uh in the last few weeks than in the last few years probably i just i don't think it's his very best but i also think that's okay 
It's yeah. it's like yeah. it's fucking with Asteroid City. I don't think that's Wes Anderson's best or anything. That's okay too because the state of the the state of affairs right now. I'll take uh, a slightly lesser Anderson or Nolan over almost anything else out there at the multiplex. You know, uh, I I think people maybe get caught up in the moment a little bit and want to turn a blind eye to something like Interstellar, Grand Budapest Hotel from nine years ago, where I think both artists were actually doing a bit more than they are now. Um, but that's just yeah, that's just yeah. my take on the matter. I think it's just it's a little recency bias gone amok, you know? I agree. I agree. I, I, I just felt, felt there were some pacing issues. I, I felt that... The last 45 minutes have pacing issues of Oppenheimer. Sure, yeah, I mean, I, I, I understand what he's going for. To me, he was going for The Irishman in that The Irishman is a movie about a thing that happened and the fallout from that thing, right? So it's like kind of like gearing up for this thing that happened and then like the next hour is this fallout from this thing. And Oppenheimer is that way too, right? Where the climax is like this big-ass event and then the rising or the falling action is the fallout from this event, right? But I just felt like the Irishman tells a story in like such a unique and 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 also traditional way in a way whereas nolan he can't quite stop with like the oh hey here's what einstein said in that <laughs> scene in the beginning here's what he actually said it's just yeah all the closed loop trickery of all of the stuff yeah it's just yeah. like man just tell a story man i think that stuff rules when it fits the story like that's why i think yeah, yeah, interstellar yeah. is his best movie is because yeah it's the emotional impact actually comes from it being that closed loop uh, with right, like the whole, right. he's fucking breaking the space time continuum to finally have a good emotional impact in a movie, you know, like that's mm -hmm. admirable. Uh, and I still really like Oppenheimer. You know, you could go back and listen to the episode that JT and I did on Oppenheimer. I have it at a very strong three and a half and one of the best of the year so far, you know, it's just not a masterpiece. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, and I saw Chinatown. We watched Chinatown recently, which oh fuck yeah, is a master. Yeah, that is a masterpiece. <laughs> and John Huston as Noah Cross. Uh, I I actually just watched it about a week ago too. Uh, and yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, it, it, that last scene. I mean, obviously, everyone talks about the last scene, but specifically the gesture of him covering the eyes of his granddaughter slash niece uh, with the bullet, you know, uh, already gone through Faye's head, like, and the graphic effects and everything. Mm -hmm. It's just one of the most gruesome things in any movie, and it lasts about half a second. Like, and that image just, it'll never leave my head. Yeah, it's it's gruesome. Uh, how about when he tells Jack Nicholson... Um... Jack Nicholson say, "How much do you? How much can you have that you already don't have?" He's like, "The future, Mister Gibbs." Yes. Oh my god. It's like it's not even for him. It's not even like a reason. It's just like, bro. Obviously, I'm, I'm just doing this because I can, bro. Like, obviously, like, why not? What else would I do? <laughs> Jesus, man. JT, yeah, yeah. you see anything good recently, JT? Um. Yeah. I read. Well, just today, I did a short Pasolini film. Uh, I've been trying to work through uh, his filmography this year. I took kind of a break with it. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I decided easy, do a little bite size, a snack, a Pasolini snack. And uh, what better to snack on than La Ricotta, 
is uh, the film. It's from the like Rogo Pog, uh, you know. Oh yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, dude, in the sixties, they were so nuts about those omnibus films where they were like, "Oh, let's just like throw eight million dollars in the toilet by getting some of the best directors ever to make fifteen-minute movies that no one will watch after a year." It's so funny, like. Because it's Rossellini, Godard, Pasolini, and then Gregoretti. Yeah. Like just the last guy, just like, damn, sorry. Like just you have to you have to have a dud in there. And uh the uh the tagline is gay beginnings of the end of the world. Uh damn. and uh so Ricotta is uh Orson Wells uh plays a director that's like between wells and pasolini he doesn't actually do the voice they have an italian actor uh dub over that but uh from my understanding uh film comes at like a very transitional point for pasolini where his very early stuff is more like neo-realist kind of like uh that style and here he's introducing more of the like direct like political like symbol stuff like he's abstracting like slightly more like he will in uh Tiarima and like solo um it's like 34 minutes so it's pretty like to the point just mm-hmm. a um there's like some black and white footage that is the majority of the film about a poor man on the set of this uh recreation of the passion and uh he is just a poor guy who's looking for some food on set and uh that like he's struggling to find it ultimately he stuffs his face with ricotta cheese and some other stuff and uh winds up like dying of indigestion on the cross um there like it's pretty funny he took the, you know, Pasolini took the whole, like, J- Jesus was Jewish thing a little literally there, man. <laughs> bro, bro died on the cross from dairy indigestion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's some shit I would do. And, I mean, obviously that moment isn't played for comedy, but it is, like, sort of the satire of, like, I don't know, the whole, the whole crew and cast on The Passion is being, like, very, like, flippant and obviously uh disregarding the material very like just bourgeois like bullshit uh involved but there's a really funny uh point uh where there's like someone interviewing uh wells the director and they ask him like uh what do you what do you think of the great like italian filmmaker fellini and he just is like he dances. He dances. <laughs> and uh, I don't know. It's kind of it feels like a very funny own. Um, but yeah, no, it's um, not as like abstract as uh, some of his work that I feel like is the best. But it's uh, I don't know, like like Pasolini, I feel like can't really go wrong with him. Uh, there, there's something to like. Nice. I mean, it's just it's just legendary that. I didn't know that Orson Welles did a movie with Pasolini, a short film. Like, that's legendary that they even made something together. I don't know. I'm kind of the fact that like that info right now. Yeah. uh, Also, the fact that every Italian movie from you know the beginning of sound up until the 80s was dubbed in you know ADR is like a crime. That Orson Welles was in a Pasolini movie and his voice isn't in it. You know. 
true yeah that is that is funny but... yeah no it very much so disappointed me when i like like fuck this is an orson obviously yeah. that's not his voice no i actually found that movie on vhs at a thrift store like three years ago weirdly popped it in it was all in black and white and the tape was really worn down and i couldn't fucking make heads or tails of anything honestly <laughs> um so yesterday william friedkin died uh one of the greatest american renegade genre directors the dude was a psycho in the way that you want your director to be he's the type of director that we can't idolize anymore not to be a uh, return to tradition type guy but he he's the type of director that if you heard those stories now on set he would never exist though those guys don't get to make movies anymore so it, it, it's obviously all of these stories are going to get inflated over time about how he basically possessed that little girl from the exorcist with the horrible shit he was whispering in her ear before the takes you know and the way that he almost killed so many actors making them do stunt driving shit uh i think that like it's, it's back to John Ford. Print the legend. Tell all those stories and make sure that everyone knows that those stories were in service of some of the most insane American films in the back half of the 20th century. I watched French Connection. Um, I'd seen it before, of course, but uh, it had been years, actually. I looked at fucking Letterboxd. I hadn't, wa- hadn't rewatched it since 2016. Uh, so I rewatched it with pretty fresh eyes. First of all, forgot how fucking snappy it is. It's like an hour 48 or so. And there's like three major set pieces that last a really long time. So there's not a whole lot of like plot points in the movie. Uh, and at first, the first time I watched it, when I was like getting into new Hollywood stuff, I was like, this plot is kind of weird. I don't really know what's going on. Then I realized there's only like four or five real plot points in the movie. And Friedkin just lets everything play out in as like long form as possible. Almost just like he's just letting these characters explore all the possibilities and just staging it so beautifully in new york i mean those iconic shots of them walking under the elevated trains and of course the chase where you know uh hackman is you know chasing the elevated train and just fucking living on the horn uh is some of the most intense stuff ever i mean you compare that to the bridge scene in sorcerer and I don't know how, like, you could compare any other 70s American director for, like, you know, car-based action scenes. You know, he, he covered both ends of the spectrum perfectly in those two movies. Uh, so, rest in power to the man himself, Hurricane Billy uh, Friedkin. I remember looking up, like, when I saw Sorcerer, which was, like, a month ago pretty recently. Mm. I remember, you know, marveling at the, the bridge scene, and I was just looking up how did they do the scene? I'm like, how was it? Done? It's yeah. like, Oh yeah. They just actually did it. Basically. Yeah. They just blew shit up, dude. They <laughs> like, destroyed like, forest. <laughs> 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 Those guys were all fucked up, dude. I mean that also Scheider's face in that movie looks so fucked up, man. Like I know yeah. he has a weird nose, but like most directors, people say they directors play into it, but they really hide it. You know, like Spielberg mm-hmm. hides it kind of, and it's really good the way he does. But like, 
I don't know, something about Scheider in that specific movie, his nose looks so fucked up. And uh, I just think it's like one of the most ragged, raw movies ever made. Sorcerer, that is. But I also, I have to say, man, the French connection, it gives me that fucking, gives me the same feeling I do with the shield, you know? Like, it's like that super grainy, run and gun, don't give a fuck, uh, super hardcore anti-moral cop uh doing horrible shit but you have to watch like you just you have to and it's a great investigation into a city at a time and place and it's just uh man it's the french connection come on now it's a classic movie i love that movie it's great yeah all right uh that is all for this week uh we will be back next week to talk about Sam Peck and Paws, The Ballad of Cable Hogue. But for now, Jason, you are a man all over town and the internet. Uh, wh- wh- I saw you were in ESPN.com today, like you're fucking Bill Simmons over here. Yeah, I mean, I, I did. I, ESPN was doing a hip hop thing, and so for their fifth anniversary, so I did that. It was a uh, song lyrics that named Athletes, and so I, I did the Kendrick Lamar line of Phil Jackson came back to know coaching me and kind of wrote about the Obama era and Twitter and NBA and how, you know, that was the start of the NBA begrudgingly starting to accept hip hop and all these different things. Um, yeah. You can find me at Rolling Stone, Vanity Fair. I have my own Substack where I talk about rap. Um, I might do some more Robbie Robertson on that Substack. So maybe I, I might do that. Um, all yeah. Right. All right. Well, I'll link the Substack in the description. And uh, that's going to do it for this week's episode. Thank you very much. And thank you, Jason, for coming on. Goodbye. Thank you for having me, bro. Stay up, baby boy. I got you. What you know about that, Mel? Uh, that's my shit, youngster. I don't know nothing about that, boy. That's for grown folks right there. I used to get a lot of pussy off of that song. <laughs> Pick up a bigger jumpsuit next week, will you?